God, you are so good. And Lord, as we just mentioned, Lord, that by your work, Lord, you have made it that us, the created, could know the Creator. That us who have sinned and fallen, Lord, can be restored and be in the presence of the Holy. And Lord, I pray if those words ring true or if they, they sound foreign or if they seem like a lie to, you know, to each of us as we are today, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and minds. Lord, that you would penetrate and, and open our eyes to your truth and your will and your way. So God, we thank you for a time to gather together. Um, I pray that uh, this would not be the extent of our gathering, but as we go through our days, that we would be a, a connected people living as a family on uh, your mission of living out your love and truth, inviting others into Christ. And Lord, that, um, that we would know the joy of living in that way. So God, all the glory is yours. Lord, only good things can happen if you come in right now through your Holy Spirit and, and move in us. Take these words and catch them aflame. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 4. We are back in Romans. We started Romans back in September. We worked through it all the way up um, to Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving, and then we took a break to go through our Advent series and then a few other Sundays. So now I am so excited to be in Romans, mainly because, I, I mean, not mainly because, this is actually a side because, it's just really nice not to have to plan sermons. I like that the Word just gives me what I have to teach and I get to teach it. So, so I'm, I'm excited to be back in Romans. We'll be in Romans uh, through the rest of the spring up to the summer where we'll take another break and then we'll pick up Romans again in the fall. It's going to take us probably a couple years. But we are up to Romans 4. <laughs> I'm not kidding, it really is. Um, but we're up to Romans 4, and so I thought since we've kind of taken a break, it's been, it's been a couple months, let's, let's just do a very, very unsatisfactory review of Romans to get us up to speed today. So just really quick, Romans it is a letter from Paul. It's a pastoral letter. We call it a book a lot, but it is a letter, and it is Paul's pastoral letter to the church in Rome. He has a lot of connections there and even has influence there, but has never been there. But it's this, it's this, uh, this letter to, to bring unity to the church in Rome between Jews and Gentiles. And it's really the, the, the greatest kind of concise, kind of con concise writing of, of the doctrine of salvation that we have. And so it, it has just been so rich to spend time in it. Our thesis verse that we kind of identified for all of Romans is Romans 1, 16 and 17. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so as soon as Paul says that, he then sets out to unpack just this, this meaty couple of verses. And so he immediately transitions in the next verse from, some, from 118 all the way to 320, kind of our great need for salvation, the fact that, that we are judged by our works, all are, because all are under the law of God, and, and because of that, we face wrath and judgment. And it was interesting, because we were in that mode for like, 
four or five weeks. And I was honestly dreading it, like just coming in here and just telling us all that, man, we are under wrath and judgment. And I was like, gosh, how, like it's going to get old. It's like, getting, like going to the dentist every day and getting another cavity filled. It kind of was like that. But it ended up just being beautiful. Like I, I, and if you, haven't, if you weren't with us, if you haven't been able to listen to all those, I encourage you to go back um, over the next couple of weeks and kind of catch up. Because it, it is a wonderful thing to be brought to the reality that, that our efforts uh, only take us so far and they don't take us far enough. But as we got to the week before Thanksgiving, and I'll tell you, we are not smart enough to plan this out. But like, you know, you come up to the Sunday before Thanksgiving and you're thinking, okay, should we do like a thankfulness sermon? And we were looking at where we were at and we got to Romans 3, 21 through 31. And, and that is totally God's providence because that, that, there is nothing greater to be grateful for than the turn that Paul makes in the scripture because he goes from like, all is hopeless. Your judgment is going to end you up like under God's wrath forever. And then he takes this turn and then he, it's just this beautiful relief. So just real quickly, reorienting kind of with Matt. Matt uh, taught us that sermon. Matt Stevens, one of our elders. And uh, just a couple of key verses uh, that we saw in that 21 through 31 of chapter 3, uh, kind of laying out this big, beautiful picture of, of a way to salvation that is not hopeless, but actually hopeful. We see 23 through 25, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, that's kind of reviewing what we just came from. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Oh through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation means a substitute um, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Verse 28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 31 puts this question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So he's really talking to the Jewish audience here, addressing kind of the, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament way of redemption by keeping the law, which included the sacrificial system. And he's really just blowing it all out of the water. And so in these first chapters where he focused on our great need for salvation, in these verses, 21 through 31, going all the way uh, into chapter 5, He's now looking at our way of salvation. So again, this transitional moment here from 21 to 31 of chapter 3 sets up all that he's going to unpack for the next couple of chapters as we have kind of divided it up. So he, so he sets out to prove, Paul sets out to prove his claim of salvation or, or justification. Those are synonymous. That is not by work or the keeping of the law, but instead through an atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our belief in Him. So that's what we're moving into. And, and so again, he's made this huge statement, and he can read, he knows, he's a Jew, like he's a Jew of all Jews. He was trained by Gamaliel, like one of the greatest Pharisees, and he, he knows the law, and he was, a, he was zealous for the law before his life was turned upside down. So he knows it, he knows what they're thinking, he phrases that question, he puts that question then in 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Because that's what they're thinking. Like, wait a second, you're, you're just throwing this all out. Like, you're turning it all on his head. He's like, no, no, no. On the contrary, we're upholding it. So now he wants to prove this. He wants to show them. And Paul, being the greatest teacher of all time that I can observe, like, he is amazing at meeting people where they're at. He does it here with the Jews. You see him doing it with, with the philosophers and, and, the, and, the, and the Greeks and, and other places. But he meets them right where they're at. 
And so he's made this huge statement. Now he has to back it up. For the Jewish audience of the time, this claim that there is deliverance in some other way other than kind of the personal merit and keeping the law, it would be as outlandish and, and ludicrous sounding as it would be for me telling you there's a better way to get to California by driving east than west. Like, if you know where California is, like, you wouldn't just hear that statement and say, okay, let's go east. Like, you would need some convincing. You would need me to unpack it and show you through what you know and how what you have known maybe isn't, isn't full, isn't the full truth. And so it's, it's that outlandish. It's that just out of left field, and it just sounds crazy. So I want you to identify with that. Um, so Paul uses, as he's working to, to, to help them see, he uses two of the greatest heroes of the Jewish faith to show them the truth he uses the example of Abraham and of David. So if you and so, as we go through these verses today, that's what we're looking at. This this beginning and of of these examples that that Paul gave, and these examples will continue all the way through chapter four. We're just going to look at the first eight verses today. But so first, we start with the example of Abraham. When we look at Abraham, we see that Paul first, he first asserts this proposition, and then he, then he backs it up. He shows proof to the proposition, and then he presents the principle that should actually cause us to come into this new understanding. So we find the proposition in verses 1 and 2. So Romans 4, 1 and 2, it'll be on the screen for you. Um, it, it'll also, if you need a Bible, there's a Bible under a chair near you, and if you don't have one at all, please take that with you. We also use the Version Bible app, uh, Live Events. If you go to the More tab at the bottom right, look for Events, click Events, we'll pop up. The passage is there, as well as some questions for further study and reflection that could be helpful. Um, but we're going to look at Romans 4, 1 through 8. We're going to start with the first two verses. So let's read that together as we look at this proposition position that Paul is making to convince these people that there is a justification outside of your merit in the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? He's setting him up. Our forefather, according to the flesh, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And so Paul presents this question of their, their, their lauded father of the faith, as he's referred to in the New Testament, of Abraham, and he's like, well, you know, he and he presents this statement, and he's presenting it to say he was not justified by works, as you have assumed. Paul basically says that it was not Abraham's obedience or his good works that justified or saved Abraham. Why is Abraham such a big deal as an example here? So for the Jewish people, Abraham was, he always played a central role in any discussion of how one may find acceptance with God. He was always central. According to an ancient Jewish writing called the Book of Jubilees in 2310, it says this about Abraham. It says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So you see the mindset towards Abraham. In another ancient writing, the prayer of Manasseh in verse 8, it says, Abraham is said not to have need of repentance, for he never sinned. So again, this idea that Abraham couldn't achieve justification or righteousness on his merit, on his keeping of the law, it doesn't jive with what they know. I mean, this is, this is their foundational beliefs, and Paul is just blowing it up. So, th so therefore, the case for Abraham is paramount. So if Abraham was not justified by works, as, as the best example of all, then no one could be justified by works. But if he was justified by faith, there can be no other justification for anyone. 
So here's the proposition. A person justified by works can boast. If Abraham had done the required work, his boasting would be right on. Right? But we see that Abraham, as it says, cannot boast before God. Therefore, Abraham was not justified by what he did, but instead, as we will see in verse 3, by believing God. And hopefully this, I hope... I hope this is connecting to hearts and it just doesn't feel like we're learning about the life of someone back in the day. But this is what it's all about. It's about how do we know that we're redeemed? How do we know that we're restored? How do we know that that we have been made right as we were intended in creation? How can we know that we've gotten there? That's the question at hand. Before we move on to the proof, though, I want to take a moment to think on what preconceived ideas that, that we might have and how we are redeemed, how we are justified as right and, and, and as accepted by God. Just thinking of some maybe some diagnostic questions, you know, if you grew up in the church, your, your, your answer to this question probably sounds familiar to what we're saying here. Probably you know something about that it's not by you, it's by Jesus. You probably know something about grace. You probably know something about faith. But I want us to kind of evaluate the posture of our lives and our behavior just by some diagnostic questions. Do you fight for control of your life? Duh. Yes. I, mean, I think I'm not alone in that case. Um, yeah, I mean, do you fight for control in your life? Do you think you know better is basically what you're saying. Like, I, I, I have the most insight into my life, and I should have the most control over what I do and what my life is about. Do you find identity in things of the world? What you have, what your job is, what your title is, who your, your mate is, what your, you know, just anything that identifies. Like, do you find identity in the things of this world? Do you define your goodness or even God's goodness based on your circumstances? You're doing good or God is good if all is right with you. If things are falling apart, then either God's not good or you are failing miserably. Is that how you define things? Are you racked with guilt when you sin against God and kind of put yourself in a season of separation from God as if you have not been reconciled as if you have not been taken from a rebel to an adopted son and daughter. So, again, wanting us to dig a little deep for those of you that grew up in the church and maybe have professed faith in Christ. For others, you may be very similar to the audience Paul is addressing. Maybe not in terminology, but at least in your motivation that you just have to do enough of the right things. Your skills have to balance well. Good outweighs bad. It's largely what Paul's addressing, and that's very calm. Or maybe it's just all about the good of humanity and your sole purpose is to do well for your fellow and future humans. And kind of like, you don't even know if any of this matters because you don't even know if it's real. This truth is no less for any of us than it was for the first century church. And it's probably no less challenging for any of us in our worldview than it was for those who Paul is addressing. So that's the proposition. So now Paul, he has to then back it up. He's got he's to give proof. So let's look at Romans 4.3. He says, for what does the Scripture say? That's just such a pivotal question. And in all questions 
of life. It would be a wonderful thing if we just always started there. As Sanj says, this gets quoted about once every six weeks. Just keep it Jesus. Let's go back to the Word. Yeah, I mean, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so seeing that, kind of coming back to that, that exhortation of let's start with the Word, Paul went to his greatest authority for his understanding. It wasn't some council. It wasn't some theologian or other philosopher or some elder board. He went to the Word of God. This, this passage here that Paul quotes is a direct reference to Genesis 15.6. And so as we think about seeking the truth of God together, we must lean on the Holy Spirit working through each other, but never separate our pursuit from the revealed truth of God, our Scriptures. So yes, there is a subjective work of understanding by the Holy Spirit. Yes, there is a way that we help each other in our understanding, but that is never the definitive word. It has to agree with the Word of God, and not just one little statement, but all of Scripture is cohesive. It is unified. And so as we, as we come to the Word as our authority of understanding in life and, and, our, and, our, and our priorities, we, we look at old and new. I mean, Paul went to the Old Testament. His entire teaching was based on the Old Testament. And so we can't cherry pick. We can't say the old is gone, the new has come. We can't say the new is, is new, so you know, we can't trust it. We can only trust the old. Like, it is all part of God's authoritative testament, all part of God's authoritative revelation. So just that's a freebie. Like, take it. Let it color your days. Let it infect your, your, your relationships in a wonderful way. Um, but as we, as we look at this, this verse is pivotal in the right understanding of the doctrine of justification. And again, when we say justification, it's synonymous with salvation as we think of it. Maybe salvation is a more familiar word, but justification is probably more, more, more vivid in actually bringing you to the, the, the reality of the work of justification and salvation. So first, we have to notice that it says, Abraham believed God. Not just that Abraham believed in God. Do you see the difference? Like, it's one thing to believe in God, that he merely exists, that he's, he's, he's there, but you can, there's so much room kind of for what you think about God. To believe God is to believe all God says, all that God does. It is to trust God. It is to put your confidence in him. Saving or justifying faith is not just believing in God, but it is fully trusting God and God alone for your and my redemption. So Abraham believed God. He believed God, the, the whole truth, the whole work, the whole person of God. There's an underlying common question here that Paul addresses. And it wasn't just for the people. I mean, I have heard it so many times and even in my kind of life and conversations. And it's this question that, that you may come to. If the New Testament teaches that justification is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, how were people justified in the Old Testament? How could they be? You know, and this is just so good, so let's unpack it really well. Paul teaches that God saved people in the Old Testament in exactly the same way as he did in the New Testament. And you're like, well, okay, show me. So, old or new, people were justified by faith. Justified by faith. 
But, you know, how can, so thinking of that question, how can someone be saved by Jesus when he had not come yet, when the atoning sacrifice, the crucifixion had not yet occurred? See, they trusted God in his provision of a future Redeemer who was to come. That was the promise of God. It was the trajectory of all of his work. It was the, it was the work of the people of Israel. They were, that was their, their, their hope. So this future Redeemer's work was typified, it was shown in the sacrificial system that was given. And again, if, and, I, and I understand that maybe you're not familiar with that, but there was a work of, of bringing sacrifices to atone of, on behalf of the people, and it was repeated all the time. And so it was typified in that. And as the people of the Old Testament looked forward to a coming Redeemer, we in the age of the New Covenant, the New Testament, look backward to that which is already accomplished in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So it's the exact same. So I imagine there's probably more to say with that, more, more, more to go back and forth on. Maybe that can be a follow-up coffee with you and I or others around you. I am not the only one who has the Holy Spirit or the Word of God, so don't, you know, feel free to do that together too. Um, but yeah, I, but it was the exact same way. It was always Jesus, Old Testament looking forward, us looking back to the completed work. But it's the second half of this verse that really anchors the teaching of the doctrine of justification as, as salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So I want to make sure that we see this clearly. It is not that, that, that there was a righteous man, and he was righteous enough, so he is justified. Instead, because Abraham believed, God considered him righteous. There's another kind of relationship here that's pretty common. There's, the, again, some more theological words. We've already been using the word justification, that the way that we are shown to be saved, the way that we are, are justified before God, there's also this word sanctification. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a completed and continuing work. Sanctification, we are, upon our confession, we are set apart for God's holy purpose. We are taken from sinners to saints, but we are also, it's a continuing work where we are continuing to be made more into his likeness as we are transformed by his grace through the work of the Holy Spirit through his word. And so what we often see is this gets inverted. Instead of, instead of we saying, okay, you are justified by your faith, now you are continuing to be sanctified, we kind of require this work of sanctification. Change yourself some, change yourself some, show that you have merit enough and then you'll be justified. This is exactly what this Paul is claiming against. It is not that there was a righteous man whose merit is enough, so he's justified. Instead, because Abraham believed, God considered him righteous. Considered, he imputed, he counted, he, he gave credit to his account as righteous. So if it were dependent on us being perfectly righteous before God on our merit, we would never get there. We would never get there. I mean, we wouldn't. Neither would Abraham. We all continue to sin. The same was true of Abraham. So we've already been theological, so if we can continue being a little theological, um, I, I want to break down justification. There are two kinds of justification at work here. There's, there's a forensic justification and a synthetic justification here at work. So first off, when we think of forensic justification, you hear that word forensic kind of in the system of law. 
You hear it in the courtroom. And so it's just, to, to kind of say it very simply, it's, again, another huge concept. But to put it simply, God, the righteous judge, speaks judgment over our standing before the court. And that judgment is that we are justified. We are just in our standing. Our guilt is no more. We are made innocent. His judgment is that we are just, innocent as if we have never sinned. So it's this ruling of our standing before the law that although we could not fulfill the law in our merit because Christ did, we are deemed just because of His work and our belief. And very closely related, we see the synthetic justice, synthetic justification, and that's the idea that in the work of Christ, something is added. You're like, okay, let's, let's, what does that mean? It's like we put on the righteousness of Christ like a cloak. Like, okay, I love movies. Anybody here love movies? Yes, I know you do. Um, does anybody here know I love movies? I love movies. Um, I've already said, so I, do, I love movies, just making it clear. Um, has anybody ever seen the movie Crash? I am going to remove the movie, I'm sorry, it's a spoiler alert. Um, but there's so much more to the movie than this. So, but there's this father and this daughter, and they, and they live in, a, in, a, you know, in the projects in a challenging community, and they have moved to be safer, but the daughter is scared because they, she had gone through something uh, pretty dramatic, and, and she's talking to her dad, and, and she's in there kind of laying under the bed, and, and she's just afraid for him and for her, and he's like, well, oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot to tell you. My mom, when I was your age, gave me this invincibility cloak, and it's invisible, it's impenetrable, you know, and, and I, I can't, you know, it protects me. It's always protected me all through my life. No matter what I've been through, I've never been stabbed, never been shot, I've never been hurt. Can you believe that? And she's like, oh my gosh. And then he's like, well, I can't believe I forgot. On your fifth birthday, I was supposed to give it to you. And so they go through this really beautiful little ceremony thing where he tenderly, like, takes off his, his invincibility cloak, and he, he wraps it around her. And then the movie goes on, and then a, a scene comes up where misunderstandings happen, and this guy comes demanding something from the father, and he's got a gun out, and, and he's outside the house, and the daughter sees him, and she's like, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. And she runs out and jumps in his arm right as the guy pulls the trigger. And she's like, and he, you know, and it's this crazy moment. Oh, my gosh, I'm seeing it right now. It's this crazy moment, and they're all just weeping and screaming, and the guy's like, I can't believe what I've done. And, and then she's like, you hear her all of a sudden say, don't worry, Daddy, I got you. I got you. And it's, you know, and it's a movie, so who knows how the guy missed when he's standing a foot away. It's a miracle. Maybe it was the cloak. But the point is, like, it just was such a picture of, of the way that the righteousness of Christ is placed over us. Because our, the sin, the brokenness, it is a violence against you and against me. It kills us. It mars our image. It defiles what we were created for. It causes separation between us and a holy God. It is a violence. And yet... When, when the righteousness of Christ is placed over us, it, when God looks at us, he doesn't see guilt. He doesn't see sin. He sees that imputed, that, that, that given righteousness of his son over you and over me. What a vivid picture. That's the work of, of forensic justification where our standing is made right, is where is our, our synthetic that it's made possible that God can remain just because a just judge always acquits the innocent and condemns the guilty. And a just judge does not do 
the opposite. And so therefore, for God to acquit us, we must actually be innocent. So it is in the placing of the righteousness of His Son, Jesus, on us that we are actually innocent. It's not just that our sins are swiped under the rug and it's saying, okay, I'm not going to consider this. It's as if it never happened. Just let that sink in. This is the reality of what Paul taught in Romans 3.26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not Abraham's merit, but the merit of Jesus Christ. So now we come to the principle. We've looked at this proposition. We've looked at this proof statement. Now we come to this principle that should be transforming to us. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. It says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here we see works are contrasted against faith as a means to justification. This is merit versus grace. So when we think of works, we see here the picture of the worker and the employee. A worker works for wages. And when a worker works, when, he gets, when the worker gets paid, it is not a gift. The worker never says, oh, thank you. The worker's like, dang right, give me my check. Right? Like it's like, because why? Because when that worker has worked, the, they have actually worked the employer into a debt. And the, employ, the employer must settle the debt. So that's the picture we're seeing here. This, this, when we think of it, if this was our way to justification, one, it's impossible, we've already covered that, but two, it doesn't demand the grace of God because a true and virtuous God must let anyone enter that has accrued enough righteousness, must let anyone enter who has worked for enough wages to earn their way in. And Scripture over and over again is clear that no one is righteous. No, not one. No, no one has, has lived up to that measure. And if this were the case, this would mean that we could place God at our debt. And man, if you think about the kind of God you want to, to, to reign over you, to, to give you commands worth following, would you want a God that you a created, that you, a temporal person, would we want a God that we could somehow have rule over him, that he could be indebted to us? Because after all, he is the eternal God. He is the creator. He is the holy one. He is sovereign. He alone is just. And you know yourself, while you are good in a lot of ways, one, because you were created in his image, and that's what he wants. But, but we know, like, we fall short of any of those. So while we're created in his image, yes, we're called to holiness. He is the only one who is perfectly holy. Therefore, we can never work him into our debt. Therefore, the merit of works can never exceed his holiness, which is our standard, which is what we were created for. So that's works. We see the merit of works is insufficient. Also, if that was the basis of how we were justified, would that be satisfying? Next, we have faith, the work of grace. Although it seems more tangible and weirdly more comforting to think that we could somehow secure our own redemption, 
through our merit. The greatest truth is that the only work we have in our justification is to believe, and the work was solely accomplished in Jesus. This is what justifies. As Jesus taught in John 6, 28 and 29, they said, then, they, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And that's Jesus. So the principle is that you will be rewarded by the way you seek to be justified. If you, if you set your life to be justified by the merit of your works, that is how you will be judged. If you seek and surrender your life to be justified by, by grace through faith alone in Christ, that is how you will be judged. One leads to death, one leads to life. If by belief the work of redemption is accomplished outside of you, it is by belief that the work of redemption is accomplished outside of you and you will be justified. So we're coming to the home stretch here. And, and Paul, just to really drive it home, he's already pointed to Abraham, but he really just wants to make it inescapable. He points to David. And, and David is equally just respected and lauded. And, and he, he, he references a, a psalm that David wrote, Psalm 32, 1 and 2, in verses 7 and 8. It says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So David, the greatest king, the man after God's own heart, the king that the people of Israel long to have once again, this, this king, David, proclaims that the blessed position is not one attained by, by, um, by good works and then given credit for, but yet but rather in the reality that God in Christ has removed their guilt and whose sin is not counted against him. Abraham and David both believed God. They believed in, in the way in which he would bring justification and the Redeemer to come. So, quick application. What do we do with all of this? And, and I'll tell you one of the challenges of teaching through Romans is, is really kind of staying in the segment we are teaching because it just unfolds so beautifully and it's hard not to let our, our, like our desire to kind of get it all, to unfold it all right now. So I just want to point us to something really simple today. Personally, reflect and respond to the promise and work of God already accomplished in Jesus Christ. For some, it may be surrender and belief for the first time. And if that's you, let the work of your salvation be accomplished in you by Jesus Christ because your work, your merit, will never measure up. If you are already a Christ follower, consider the work that has been accomplished. Every day, rest in the amazing, humbling, joyful, exhilarating, emboldening truth by grace, you are redeemed in Jesus. Let that fill your life with purpose and courage. And to speak of that, so, so we don't accomplish the work for our salvation, but we in our salvation are called to the work of our salvation. And what is that? You see, God is not against effort. He is just against earning. 
And because your salvation is a matter of identity, that all that you are is secured and renewed and wrapped up in Christ, and to think about what that identity is, it's your position in the family of God as well as your kingdom purpose in this world. Because this is the case, there is a world around us every day that is striving in futility, that is striving to measure up, that is striving to find peace in some self-attaining way. Let your heart break with love and compassion. Be humbled and remember your state that you are no different and only in Christ are you renewed and saved. And so run to the world. Live intentionally with every breath and every step. Wherever you are, there is no part of your life that is not meant for God's glory. There is no part of your gifting that is not meant to be used to call others in, that is not meant to be used to build up the church so that we can be more effective at that. So get to the work of your salvation. Guys, we get to live out the love and truth of God in a way that calls the world to freedom. We get to. The way that you live could be one of the greatest instruments God uses to invite the world into Jesus, to freedom, to redemption, to a justification that that was accomplished in Christ and ours in their belief. God, we love you. God, we praise you. We thank you that our, our salvation, our justification, Lord, is not by our merit. Lord, that you have invited us to believe. And Lord, you are worthy. Lord, you are, you are holy. You are just. You are love. You are mercy. You are true. And we thank you that in your divine love and grace, Lord, you made a way for the law to be fulfilled in Christ that all of us, outside of our merit, could be saved, could be redeemed in Jesus Christ. So now, work in hearts. I pray for those that are followers of Christ. I pray that this would be a time of just deepening our conviction and our roots, Lord, that this faith, this reality of relationship with you would take hold of our lives that we could not escape, and it would infect and overtake every breath and every purpose. And I pray for those in here, if there are any in here that, that are, that are you know, still seeking or, or cynical to this, I just pray for... I just, I just pray for, for your love and your word and your grace just to wash over their hearts and minds or to know that they are loved regardless of their belief. To know that you are pursuing them and to know that they are welcome. But Lord, each of us must decide. Each of us must choose whether to believe or not. And so Lord, I pray that you would bring us to that place of surrender, and that it would be a daily work. We thank you that your salvation is forever um, and that we are being made more like you and your grace abounds. So we love you. We respond in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.